welcome to the Good Question with Jessica Tanderup podcast. I'm Jessica, and I have a passion for asking hard questions and going deep in conversation. Usually, these discussions happen over dinner or coffee with a close friend. But on this podcast, I bring them to you because I want you to know if you have questions, you're not alone. On this show, I invite apostolic leaders, thinkers, and fellow believers to tackle the tough topics questioners face as we strive to live out our biblical mandate to love God, love people, and take the gospel to the whole world here in the 21st century. I hope you'll stick around because when you know Jesus is the answer, every question can be a good question. Hello and welcome friends. You're listening to episode 14 of Good Question. I am thrilled to have you here. Today's episode is on a timely topic that I felt God nudging me to speak about for quite a while, and that's the issue of race and racism. Here in the U.S., we know that the past year has brought to the forefront issues of injustice that have long been overlooked by many of us, both in the church and out. One of the good questions I've been asking for a few years now is, what should we as Holy Ghost-filled, apostolic, people of the name of Jesus be doing in response to the demands for justice taking place in the culture around us. To help me tackle that question, I invited on as my guest, Pastor Omar Jolly, the lead pastor of the Sanctuary of Elmont, a congregation located just outside of Queens in New York City. Pastor Jolly is a minister, husband, and a father of four committed to pursuing greatness in every area of his life and ministry. And while that may sound like an arrogant ambition, you'll hear in his own words how examining ourselves in the light of a desire for greatness actually produces humility and reverence when we realize that the path to greatness in God's kingdom is through a life and attitude of servanthood. I know the topic of race can be an uncomfortable one, but I'm asking you to stick with us and hear our heart behind this conversation. And I hope this episode generates some good discussion over on Instagram. So if you're not following us there, I hope you'll hop over and join us. We're at Good Question Show. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, here's my chat with Pastor Omar Jolly. Pastor Omar Jolly, welcome to Good Question. Hey, good morning, Jessica. I'm so honored to be on talking with you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm really thrilled that you uh, were available and that you were willing to come on and talk with me. Our show is all about pulling the questions and the topics that people are afraid to ask or aren't sure who to talk to about out into the open and having those discussions that maybe are a little bit more uncomfortable, but that are really important for us to have in the church. So that's kind of what we're all about here. And from the start, before I ever released an episode, I knew that race and racism was a discussion that needed to be had. And that I have felt specifically the Lord nudging me for several years that I need to be going first and having this conversation in a public way, as uncomfortable as it can be, and as unqualified as I feel like I am to talk about it, it has been something that I have felt the Lord prompting me to do. And so, you know, we didn't realize this whenever I invited you on the show, but we are one day out from a kind of a historic moment in our country, the 
verdict came out yesterday in the trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis for the killing of George Floyd last summer, which, of course, as anyone who's not had their head under a rock knows, has set off just a, a resurgence of discussion and passion around the issue of racial injustice in the United States. And so I feel like this is a timely even more so than we realized last week when we decided to have this conversation, uh, a timely discussion for us to have. I'm thrilled to have you here to have it with me. And so I just want to say from the outset, I know a lot of folks are uncomfortable even attempting these conversations because we're afraid to have them. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so I just want to say from the outset, I probably will say the wrong thing. (laughs) I probably will uh, speak maybe from a place of ignorance or insensitivity. And if that happens, I apologize in advance and I ask you to please correct me and and show me a better way to say whatever it is that I might say incorrectly or or any kind of misconceptions that I have. I want to learn. I want to I want to show people that we can have these conversations in a way that's loving and godly and respectful for one another. So I just want to say that from the outset. Again, I appreciate you being here. And so I would just love it if you would introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from, and then we'll get into the, uh, the meat of this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you again. And I thought from the onset that I, I needed to apologize too, because <laughs> this is obviously a topic that uh, is very weighty, disturbing and troubling, but it also stirs us to a place of awareness and change. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm going to say all the right things, um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll help each other as we share together for yes. the next few moments. But Again, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, my name is Omar Jolly, and I'm the lead pastor of the sanctuary in Elmont, New York, in the Long Island area. We're, we are located in the northeast area of Elmont, right outside of Queens. Uh, so we are still, you know, connected to or close to the city. So we're not too far out on the island. We just celebrated nine years of ministry this past March, and we're so thankful for this where we are, our my my wife, who is amazing, our four boys, our team of leaders, workers and volunteers that really uh, help us to do ministry the way we're doing it by being effective in this time and reaching people and staying connected. So I'm eternally grateful for the people that God has sent to our lives and to be a part of our church to really make it happen. So we're blessed with a great church, been in ministry, I'm now 40 years old. I can't believe I'm saying that, <laughs> but I, I've been in ministry since I was 15 years old. I went to Bible college for two years, came home, got married, plugged myself right into ministry. All I know is ministry. I've been full-time in ministry ever since I graduated from Bible college. I served as student pastor and administrative and executive assistant for Uh, My home church, New Life Tabernacle in Brooklyn, uh, that's under the leadership of my pastor and spiritual father, Bishop Michael A. Mitchell. And I served in that role for nine years. And then I went on to evangelize full time for two years. Mm. And then uh, I guess our our family was just enlarging. (laughs) God (laughs) blessed us with four amazing boys. Isaiah is my firstborn. He's 14. Jaden is 12. Caleb is my third son. He's 10 and Ethan is the last and he's nine. And I just said four and no more. I need Mm. to stay home (laughs) and stop traveling and let's plant a church. I mean, you know, there's a twofold approach to planting a church. You save them and you make them. So we did a good job making (laughs) disciples and followers. So 
got an amazing wife. I've known her since I was 11 years old, since I walked into the church. And we just always had an awesome friendship, relationship, our families being close together, of course, being raised in church. We did everything together in terms of uh, ministry. The church goes from Bible quiz and Sunday school class to being on the youth choir, to being on the mass choir, to youth camps, you name it. So we grew up together in church. And so she's just an amazing asset to my life. My best friend, and we dated for four years, and and then we got married. So, um, and this year we are celebrating 18 years next wow. month in May of marriage. So, couldn't do uh, life and ministry without her. She's amazing. So we're blessed with a great family, blessed with a great church, and that is the joy of my life: is my family, my church. Well, that's fantastic. I love, I love to hear people's background. You know, it's it's always interesting to hear kind of where where people come from and how they've gotten to where they are and congratulations on nine years in Elmont. That's fantastic. I, I love it. I lived in Queens for a couple of years and uh, sure do miss New York City. It's a, no place like it on the earth. So you know it. Absolutely. Thank <laughs> you so much. So as we mentioned at the beginning, we we came together today. I reached out to you to see if you would be willing to talk to us about race and racism in the church and our response as apostolics, because I think there's a lot of messaging from lots of different places. There is a plethora of information available if anyone wants to go looking for it on this topic. But I wanted to talk about it specifically as apostolics. What should our response be? How should we be addressing this topic? And what is your experience? So that's kind of the path that we'll take today as we talk about this. And so I guess we'll just jump right in. I mentioned at the beginning that we're a day out from second degree murder conviction for a police officer in Minneapolis, former police officer, for the killing of George Floyd last summer. And over the course of the last year, as we've seen protests and unrest across the country, one of the phrases that comes up is the phrase Black Lives Matter. And it has become a polarizing phrase, I guess. And so I guess I would like to just hear from you. What does that mean to you? What should it mean to us as Christians? And what is your experience around that whole idea? Ooh, all right, here we go. Big topic, obviously. To me, I believe Black Lives Matter is a movement that was formulated out of an awareness. And I think sometimes we kind of flip the script. We kind of look at this whole movement, this whole organization. You know, we're quick to do a Google search, go on their website, see what they're all about mm-hmm. and their morals, you know, things of that nature. But let's look at it from an initial standpoint. It's an awareness. Before it was a hashtag or, or a logo with an identity, a website, an organization that has created a contagious support all around our world, not even just our country, but around the globe. Mm. It's birthed from an awareness, an awareness of the racial and ethnic inequalities in American society. It's an awareness of the racial disparities that floods the criminal justice system in our country and undermine its effectiveness. And before the movement can become an impact collectively, I believe that the initial purpose of Black Lives Matter is really to initiate awareness to the individual, especially to the ones encountering realities that they've never before considered. Mm -hmm. So raising awareness really creates advocates for change, thus committing to action. So there's a culture, there's a community, there's a voice (laughs) of reflection that is rising up that refuse to stay silent. 
they refuse to be quiet about the historic and or present racial discriminations and injustices. I also think, unfortunately, there's a fraction of white Christians who don't agree with this awareness Mm. or to say the least, you know, have an understanding of it. Here we go. So I I might just get in trouble for saying this, but (laughs) from a political perspective, evangelicals, especially those who support Republican candidates, are uncomfortable with the movement because of its embrace of liberal politics Mm. associated with Democrats. But I'll leave that hot topic alone. And that's (laughs) as much as I'll say. But again, you you know, you hear and you see some of their feedback like all lives matter. Mm. But in the context and parameters of the pent up pain issues of wrongdoing and and the reason why the movement was formed, my problem with that reaction is twofold. Number one, Black Lives Matter does not negate the fact that all lives matter. Mm -hmm. And trying to generalize a matter that is so zeroed in and focused on something specific is, is ignorant. So, you know, saying Black Lives Matter is neither separatist or racist. It's not anti-white and contrary to some to some in the media, you know, as far as what they might say or post. And definitely it's not anti-police. Right. It does not denote or promote or support hatred or, or, or violence or uh, against any ethnic group. It's about promoting the love of self and African-American rights to equal justice and fairness. And number two, that Black people are shining a light in this time by expressing through this awareness that their life does not matter. They are feeling that their life does not matter. We can we can say all lives matter when Black people's life matters and when they feel like their life matters. And when we, when we say, you know, matters, you know, we, we, you know it means uh, of importance or significance and, and consequence. And for many in the African-American community saying Black Lives Matter is our way of declaring that we are important, that our issues are important, and neither we as individuals nor the issues that impact us will be discarded, will be overshadowed, will be treated as nonsense or accused of playing the race card anymore. Yes, we know that every life matters, but Black lives are being disproportionately impacted and killed because of racism. And, you know, you mentioned George Floyd and there's a a list of so many, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown and uh, Breonna Taylor and Tamir Rice and so many others that died because of the color of their skin. And that's why Black Lives Matter is so important. And I'm concerned about the church because it seems like ending racism is a debate. We're quick Mm. to preach against racism in our church services, but we're slow by a lack of our example because we fail to take life actions against it. That's powerful. Like that comment by itself is enough to make us all stop and think. Yeah, we'll, we'll preach about it in the vague generalization that obviously we, we believe that it's wrong, but are we taking action? And I think uh, I'm like you, I don't, I don't want to get in a whole lot of trouble getting into the politics of it, but you're right that there has been a, a marriage of evangelical Christianity to conservative politics which has then translated to the Republican Party, which has then made any discussion of this on the other side of politics feel like it's an other, uh, I don't know how even to describe it, but how, that, that it's against us whenever we should be the ones standing up and saying, no, of course, the lives of Absolutely. Black people matter. Of course, <laughs> the lives of people of color in this country and in this world matter because they matter to Jesus. So they matter to us. and so. 
I think it's really good because I think what happens is that we we do we get all of the baggage that gets tossed onto a movement gets attached to the phrase and we don't stop and look at what the words actually mean. You take the capital letters out of it. Yeah. And you just look at it on a piece of paper. And if you can't say that you support that idea, then I think we might we maybe need to stop and examine examine our own hearts and what we really believe. Absolutely. You you can't care about my soul if you don't care about my life. Yes. 100%. <laughs> so we got to do more than, you know, what we do as far as church. It sounds good. Preach. It preaches good. But it's uh, until people see, you know, your, your example by your actions outside of a church service, then people will know that you really care about them. Yeah. So what kind of actions would demonstrate that? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think uh, being a voice to our community because I, I believe where, where God plants a church or where God plants a community, he, he puts a church in that community. And in that community, of course, there's people, families uh, of different racial backgrounds, ethnicities. Um, and so with that, the, the church has a responsibility. Yeah, we, we have great services and, and, and nothing against what we do from an internal perspective when it comes to our services and uh, midweeks or whatever else we do. But but are we doing a good job connecting with community? Are we doing a good job connecting church with community? And and again, I'm grateful for my team and our leaders that I intentionally surround myself around, seek advice and counsel. I've learned in pastoring and church planning, never be intimidated by the people that God sends to you. Mm. And we have this mindset, or for, at least for me, being raised in church, that the pastor has all the answers. Mm. <laughs> and the reality is, the pastor does not have all the answers. It doesn't take away from your anointing and your your role and your position uh, as the angel uh, over that house or, or pastor in that church. But understand that God sends key people. I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples. Mm. Jesus wasn't a Lone Ranger. He wasn't, you know, a superstar in a rental car. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it just, it, uh, he surrounded himself with his disciples. And so it's the same for me that I, I circle myself around people that I know that, you know, will have different perspectives or different opinions and will see things that I may not see clearly for, for me to, you know, consider and to think about some things because the agenda overall is that we want to connect our church to our community. Mm-hmm. If people live in your community and they don't know the name of your church, they don't know anything about your church, then maybe it's a good time for you to make some assessments mm. as to what are we not doing <laughs> you know what are we right. what are we failing to do so to answer your question there's so many things that you can do in terms of building relationships with your community leaders politicians uh, in your town be a voice be an example spread love and peace we're not advocates of violence obviously but there are so many methods and ways and ideas that the church can really come outside the walls of a building and really be a partner uh, of spreading the message of hope and the message of uh, of the gospel. And that's what Jesus came to do because he said, you know, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but I bring you peace. And so there is a remedy, there is an antidote. And we just got to look in 2021 and say, what role does the church play and what can we do to be effective in that role by connecting our church to our community? And I hope that makes sense. 
Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. And I think what you were saying about surrounding yourself with people who have a different perspective. I think sometimes whenever, you know, we see companies uh, trying to diversify their their board or discussions of diversity in hiring or that sort of thing, that it can feel like that people are just doing it to look good or because, you know, it's politically correct. Right. But I think that the goal, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the goal behind all of that is to bring different perspectives to the table. Correct. Because if everyone at the table has the same experience, then you're missing key information about your community. From If we're talking exactly about a right. church and a, and a leadership team, um, if everyone on, on that team looks the same way, then you're missing information about people in your community and... And so you're missing whole chunks of the people that you're called to serve. Right. And it's always extending yourself and sharing and, and pouring out, reaching, serving. You know, I, I did a message a couple of weeks ago at my church, the Upside Down Jesus, and it rocked my world because it was birthed from, you know, when I turned 40 in February. And I and I prayed, you know, early that morning, tears rolling down my eyes. and I said, God, I want to be great. And I know that to the outsiders, that that line, that statement may it can hold itself to be somewhat of, you know, of arrogant or, you mm-hmm. know, cocky, whatever. But I said it with all humility and with all this the genuineness of heart to say, God, I, I want to be great. I want to be a great man. I want to be a great husband and I want to be a great father. And I looked at every aspect of my life and I said, God, I what do I have to do to bring greatness to my life. I can't speak for everybody else. This is just, I'm taking ownership of my life. What can I do to be great? Hmm. And, you know, when you turn 40 and for anyone here, and let's just go from a biblical perspective, I mean, 40 is a significant number. Mm-hmm. We could talk about 40 years in the wilderness with Moses and, and the children of Israel. We could talk about Jesus being in the wilderness, tempted of Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. But when he came out of the wilderness, he came out full of the power of the spirit of God. And so 40 denotes a place of awareness, not Mm -hmm. just spiritually, but overall in life. And I feel like for me, there's been an awareness that hit me. 40 hits different. (laughs) I thought 30, I was like, oh my God, I'm 30 years old. And I'm like, oh, this is, uh, my life is done. And this, you know, I had, I enjoyed my twenties, but 40 hits very, it hits in a different way. And I think it hits differently, not from a negative connotation, but really from a place of awareness, mm. seeing where you are and where you're going and making some, some real meaningful steps in, in regards to your life and living life out on purpose. So for me, Jesus, I guess the Lord kind of brought me to that, to that text, you know, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Mm. That's the message of Jesus. So, and, and I, and I want to be that example. I want my church to be that example. What, what, what can we do to serve people and serve them to the, with, not with the intention of thinking that we're going to gain them or we're going to, you know, they're going to join our church. that will mm. be great. But that's, that's not the motive behind why we reach out to people and serve our community. They will. Ne- they they may never call us. They may never walk through our doors, and we we hope that they will. But at the end of the day, that's not the reason behind why we serve people. There's a lost and dying world, and people are hurting, and, and there's there's hopelessness, and there's discouragement, and there's so much is happening in our community and around our world. And so, it's the church's responsibility to, you know, to not just have good church. <laughs> 
and not just do what we do from the inside or within the four walls, but what are we not doing enough of in terms of reaching out to our community? I think that's so good. And it's counter to the messages that I felt like I've heard over the years uh, growing up in the church. Yeah. That the reason that we're serving people is not so that they come to our church. We're serving them because Jesus asked us to serve them. That's exactly right. I think that would revolutionize and change us for the better if we got a hold of that and really embraced it. Absolutely. So if that's our goal, if that's our goal is to to be a, a church that's serving our communities, I can hear I can hear in my mind the voices of different people uh, in our churches saying, "Okay, so if that's our goal, then why are we going to get hung up talking about a divisive issue like race?" Mm-hmm. And the message that you can get, especially as a white person in a majority white congregation, the idea can can come across that yes, racism is a sin, but that's an issue that happens out in society. And once we're here and we're born again and we're, you know, all brothers and sisters in the Lord, that's not a problem that comes into the church. We've somehow solved it or we've overcome it or the Holy Ghost just deals with it and takes care of it and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Do you believe that's true or are we just kind of burying our heads in the sand? That's a good question. I believe the answer is no. I don't find that to be true. I don't believe we've solved it Mm -hmm. or overcame this issue. This discourse really underscores the critical responsibility of all public voices, including the church. And as a result, we are called to combat racism without advocating violence. And preachers to the choir here, but we all know that racism is a sin. And it's a sin that blocks out the image of God among specific members of the family of God. And that's one of the main reasons why we're called to combat it. If it brings friction and division to the body or the family of God, then God has serious problems with that. Mm -hmm. And this issue makes it our biblical responsibility because it violates the fundamental human dignity of those called to be children of the same father. Mm -hmm. So we can't bury our heads in the sand. Your silence speaks. Mm -hmm. And so there's a role that each and every one of us have to play in making sure that the family of God stays together and feels like that they matter and that they're a part of the family. There's no stepchild in the family of God. Mm. We all have the same daddy. So again, because I am a white woman who grew up in the, you know, the Midwest, South region of the country, mm. I'm familiar with some of the, the questions or the arguments that come up on this side of the conversation. And so I can hear pastors or ministers or, or you know, leaders saying, we love everyone. Everyone's welcome in our church. And there are even, it's not been uncommon for me in different congregations that I've been in that there's a stated desire for more diversity in the congregation that would reflect the diversity in the community. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't know how to reach out in a way that is respectful or loving or encouraging. People don't know what they don't know, I guess. Right. So what kind of advice would you give to, you know, majority white congregations or pastors who truly have a heart that wants to do this well, but they just don't know what they don't know? Right. What would you say to them? What kind of, where where should they start? Uh, I mean, that's another good question, Jess. They're probably, you know, saying to themselves, how can I, you know, someone who's not an African-American who can't relate to the pain and hurt. Uh, 
be transparent about the reality of racism without receiving pushback mm-hmm. to those who experience this issue. But I, I really want to strongly encourage those individuals to to get involved and to stay involved in combat racism. There's a lot of great people out in this world, and I'm blessed to have a lot of friends, a lot of good friends that are good people, both of color and those that are Caucasian. And and some of my uh, our conversations, uh, you know, that I that I share with them, you know, they're honest about it. They said, you know, Omar, how how can I what role do I play as a pastor in my church? What's going on uh, in our world? What do I say They're, I mean, they're like standing on pins and needles Mm -hmm. because they don't want to say the wrong thing. I get it. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe from a, uh, while they're preaching or, you know, maybe a conversation that they're having with a family member in their church, you know, this one word, it is, (laughs) it it all takes one word, uh, (laughs) you know, that you say the wrong thing, and uh, you can regret it. Mm-hmm. It will be a big deal. So I, I understand, you know, where they're coming from, you know, and how they feel. But but I still want to encourage, you know, those individuals to get involved and to stay involved. Because at the end of the day, Jessica, it's our God-given responsibility as a Christian. And if you approach these issues being a child of God, I don't think you have to worry about getting it wrong or messing it up. Mm. Because ultimately, you show you will show the love of Christ to others, especially to those who have been impacted by racism. Empathy is 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 something that needs to needs to be seen more, mm. because you can't relate you you know to those that have experienced this, who have been impacted by this. Years of frustration, years of injustice, years of just wrongdoing, and and so now we're living in a culture of. Uh, no more silent and me too and black lives matter and all because we're trying to bring awareness to something that has been in the dark and has been not dealt with for for centuries and so it's a generation that they're ready to talk up and ready to speak up and i think we just need to find our role and ask god really for direction and wisdom in regards to you know guiding my communication with other people uh, how I feel, you know, towards uh, people's story and, and their experiences of what they're going through. I just don't think you saying, I don't want to be involved and I have nothing to say. I don't think that's that that should be an option. Find a way to get involved and to stay involved in combating this racism because we need everybody. Yeah, I mean, I know for me, just as a, just personally, the most impactful things that I have experienced are just pushing down the discomfort and listening to someone's story. Right. Because, you know, you can look at look, look at things like a whole movement or a whole protest or a whole the politics or or whatever of it and it gets to be so huge and so overwhelming. But if you can just take it one person at a time, and just listen to a story. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be if it's if it's so uncomfortable in the to try to do that in person. There are people telling their stories all over the internet. And there are books that are being written, published every day. Absolutely. Of people that are that are coming out to share their stories. And it doesn't take very long. Even if you if you haven't ever experienced these things yourself, it doesn't take long of listening to the stories to start noticing the patterns. And to yeah. start realizing that 
no, this issue didn't get taken care of in the 60s. And no, it hasn't gone away. Even if I, as a white woman, have not had to see it in my face every day. Right. That doesn't mean it's gone away. And just having that experience of starting to say, you know what, maybe my experience is not the only one. It's good. It starts to open your eyes. And for me, at least, once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's exactly right. And once you realize it's there, then you start to notice it. And it doesn't take too long of that before you start to realize, yeah, as a Christian, I have to do something about this because this is not right. This is not of God. Yeah. When you see it, I mean, there's a responsibility on your end. Obviously, I mean, you're held accountable. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't know, if you've never seen it, then that's another story. But what are you going to do with what you heard, <laughs> what you've seen on the news? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it? And so there's got to be a role that you you need to play in that. So and I think the beauty of it all, especially seeing everything, you know, of recent is that you see every ethnicity and color and background just representing in this cause for change and fighting against injustice. This is not a black thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, the uh, it's it's it moves me to see so many of the white community and the Hispanics and the Asians and just and across the globe, literally from uh, every nation, really rallying together for for a common cause. And that's the beauty of it all. And it just goes to show this is more than we're fighting for the African-American community because they're feeling it more, mm-hmm. you know, of, of all the things that's happened, uh, you know, to us. And, and so for for everyone in these uh, to, to be the diversity that we see to support this, it, it's it's just amazing. And that's the beauty of it all. So uh, and that's an, and that's a great example that we're going to rally. We're going to yeah, we're going to be a part of peaceful protesting. Uh, that's our right, you know, for our community. And we're going to stand out. I, I, I was I was excited to be a part of a, a peaceful protest in Manhattan last year when when the whole George Floyd situation came out and happened. And I took my sons with me because I, I want them to experience their right to peaceful protest mm. and, and understand that, listen, we, we live in a beautiful world amidst of the hate and the violence and all that, that that that's not all of our world mm. but there is a segment that really believes in us and believes in our world and society that if we come together we can make a difference and that's what it was all about yeah it has been encouraging to see i i know that last year was a hard year uh in a lot yeah. of ways but it did feel like something shifted and i'm just believing that change is coming and I want to be part of it. I feel like the church needs to be not just involved, but we should be leading the way in, totally agree. in making, making sure that all people are valued. So there's a, there's another argument that I wanted to get your take on because I heard this a few years ago and I haven't been able to forget it, obviously. Mm-hmm. It was a comment that was made in passing in a sermon that wasn't even really about any of this stuff, but the topic of the racial unrest and things like Me Too, and I guess what now, this wasn't the phrase at the time, but would now be called cancel culture. This minister addressed those topics and his take on it was that the root of the issue was an epidemic of unforgiveness. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. (laughs) And so I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your take on that, what you think about that idea. Man, these questions are tough. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say I don't agree with that statement. And here's why. First of all, 
let's shed some light on the Me Too movement. And I, I'm thinking, I don't know if I've really talked about this much. So I'm, it's it's pretty cool that I can kind of share my my thoughts and my perspective on on this. The Me Too movement is really a platform for you know survivors. We know that feminist survivors to discuss the power of their stories. Mm-hmm. But it also, I believe it's a resource center uh, that offers hope and support to the survivor in navigating trauma to restore a sense of safety and joy and happiness uh, to their life. Also, I believe it, it means to the men, especially those of, you know, the figure of power and status and popularity who violates seeing their humanity and offering them mercy while requiring accountability mm. and refusing to indulge in narcissism. Mm. <laughs> that's 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 basically what it is. Everyone, again, preach it to the choir. Everyone deserves grace and, and the chance to transform into a better version uh, of themselves. Forgiveness, it must be possible if society wants to reduce instances of sexual misconduct. But it will take work and willingness to change from both the society at large and the person that does the violent act. And if that's the purpose of why this movement exists, to say it's the epicenter of unforgiveness, it's not accurate. Mm. It's not accurate. With social media platforms and community and people coming together, obviously it showcases these violations even more. But the real goal is to use any means to bring awareness. And I, and I, I guess I'm on repeat mode today because <laughs> I think that's the big word. It brings it showcases these uh, violations. But the purpose is to bring awareness that will result in accountability. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's another big word. And that's what's missing. It's it's accountability. It's unfortunate that social and racial and uh, criminal court and police and all of these entities shows a lot of injustice towards African-American community. So programs and movements like Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, I believe they all exist to bring awareness to real life issues because of a lack of accountability. Mm. Let's be real. You can't be okay with a repeated offense. Something that has happened over and over again, and most of the time, you see no justice. You know, incidents, these incidents, they've they've caused widespread pain, rage, violence across our nation, you know, protest. Every new case or breaking news we hear, you know, just releases years of frustration that can never be fully understood by those who have not consistently lived with injustice historically or presently. Mm. And so I, that that's just my little two cents on it. Yeah, I mean whenever like I said whenever I first heard that that phrase I thought, well, but the the key to forgiveness is repentance. Yeah. And if there's no repentance or like you said there's no accountability, it's very hard to forgive. That's exactly right. I mean, even Jesus doesn't forgive us until we repent. So to ask us to continuously forgive, forgive, forgive someone who doesn't, or someone or a society at large who is not willing to change and is continuously performing the same harmful acts over and over and over again, I don't believe that's a biblical model of forgiveness. 
Totally agree. I, it, I mean, the Bible itself, we can look there. It's Isaiah the prophet. I mean, he, he said, woe is me. You know, when when you you know you're accountable when when you say to yourself, you know, woe is me or David, the 51, the 51st Psalm, that everything is he's shedding the light on himself. He's accountable. Mm -hmm. Create in me a clean heart. Blot out my transgressions against thee. Only have I sinned and done evil in thy sight. Mm -hmm. Everything is I. Everything is me. There's an accountability. And God is not going to forgive. There's not true repentance. Let me say it like that. If there's not true accountability. Wow. And so, you know, again, this 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 culture where, you know, silent no more feeling like, you know, I've been taken advantage of, you know, I've been hurt, whatever, you know, these survivors now want to share their story because, you know, they're not the only ones. So their story is helping somebody else speak out that just because someone of power, someone of prestige, someone that's, uh, that's, you know, popularity, that's, that's got it all, you know, uh, that's got the status, you know, you're, you're going to be held accountable for your actions. Yep. So much to think about, man. I'm just, my brain is just going a hundred miles an hour here. I'm trying to figure out where we go from here. <laughs> it sure is. It's just, uh, and again, this is the purpose, Jessica, of why this movement exists. Yeah. And and it's, uh, to say all of that is the epicenter. I mean, that's a big word. In other words, I guess you're saying that these movements and what's happening, you know, with these programs and organizations, you are the reason of the unforgiveness. That's just, that's just not accurate. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. That's just not accurate. Well, and I think it goes back to, to the idea of not having to experience that historical and ongoing repeated level of injustice. Yeah. I mean, and another buzzword that can get a lot of people's hackles up is the word privilege, right? And we talk about mm-hmm. having white privilege and that can really push a lot of people's buttons because they say, oh, you know, I... I haven't had any special treatment. I've, you know, I've worked hard for everything that I have. And I think until you stop and start, start really looking at, like I said, hearing people's stories and understanding that you can benefit from societal privilege without being a quote unquote privileged person as far as financially privileged, or you feel like you haven't been given special treatment. But until you start looking around and realize that like the playing field has not been equal at any point in time. Right. And you have benefited from that. It can bring on feelings of shame and guilt. And and then you think, and then that, then you respond with defensiveness, right? Like, it's not my fault. I didn't do this. I didn't ask for this. What can I do or what should I do? And then I think that defensiveness pushes you to a place of just saying, throwing up your hands and saying, well, there's nothing I can do about it. And so it wasn't my fault. And so there's not my responsibility yeah, I, you know, the other side of that, Jessica, is, is really, I mean, and I can just speak for my life and my family is is being more intentional about making sure that you chase after your goals and your dreams and live out the best with all the opportunities that can come your way. Mm-hmm. Work hard. I just There's a percentage, there's a piece of the pie, if you will, that you, you got to take ownership to yourself and say that, you know what, I'm not going to be another statistic. I'm not going to be labeled in that category. I'm not going to be a part of the stereotype. I'm going to be the one that's going to evoke change. 
mm-hmm. by my decisions. So there, there, there's a role you play in this. So it's not just, you know, the blame game, oh, white privilege and your privilege, this, your privilege, that. And, you know, just well, what are you going to do to change that? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not just uh, the awareness and just saying it, but let's not let's not be ignorant to the fact that, you know, it doesn't just stop there. That true change really comes with the role that you play mm-hmm. in making that change and making a difference. And so, you know, and we could talk about education, you know, staying in school and working hard and staying out of trouble and circling yourself around the right people. And, you know, it just all, all of that matters and it propels you to a destiny that's sure to be a life of success and blessings that God desires all of us to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, there, there's a role in it. We see all of this and obviously a lot is out of our control. We can't change it. We don't have no magic <laughs> gift or whatever that we're able to you flip on a light switch, so to speak, and everything just kind of changes itself. No, well, I'm going to change me. I'm going to change my family. And yeah, okay. My youngest son, Ethan, like he's a storyteller. Like it's just blows me away how he just tells uh, stories, you know, and um, he's so with history. Uh, he's so just like intrigued with history and naming all the presidents of the United States <laughs> and uh, at five years old, naming all the capitals of every state. Like I, I, I still don't know <laughs> the capitals <laughs> of some states. It just, it just, it's amazes me. And, you know, you got to feed that. Mm-hmm. Don't just say, oh, that's awesome, Ethan, because, you know, you're nine years old and no, don't shortchange that. That's a gift. Mm-hmm. And that could be the very thing. Well, what you see now as maybe something light and, oh, wow, that's like amazing that, you know, sometimes I, you know, we got four boys. So we got four different iPads and four different devices going on at the same mm-hmm. time. And Lisa and I, you know, we're just like going crazy. Like, what are they watching? And hope it's not. You know, nothing inappropriate or anything, you know, that's that's garbage on, you know, on YouTube or whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. And, and before we kind of, you know, make that initial approach, you know, I've learned and he's taught me because a couple of times I had to repent and I had to say I'm sorry. And because you just look at him, you know, sitting down with a device in his hand for hours. And so I, I have to approach it in a way that he could be learning something. Mm. So instead of, why are you on an iPad for, you know, five hours, six hours? <laughs> it's like, Ethan, hey, buddy, what are you doing? And he's looking at all these these stories, you know, this uh, National Geographic and these stories on YouTube about the presidents and, you know, uh, those that got assassinated and, you know, how they live their life. And it blows my mind listening to this nine-year-old kid. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got a role as a father to feed that. Yeah. That could make him a multimillionaire. That could make him the next president of the United States. That could create a platform for him to be what I prayed on my 40th birthday. Great. Mm. So what I do now and my reactions to all that I see him doing, it determines how far he goes in life. That's my ultimate responsibility. I don't want to say I can care less. Because, yeah, you do care about what's happening around our world. But in terms of changing that, that's out of my control. Mm. My responsibility is my family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the people that God has put into my life. And he has given me a window of time and space to ensure that I do the best that I can 
to show that greatness through my marriage, through my my fatherhood, so that I can live to see my four boys grow up and be great. That's my ultimate responsibility. I really love that because I think that if we take that and we use just that little picture that you just gave of your family as kind of a model for how we should all approach this topic, right? I can't fix everything, but I can teach my own kids. Yeah. And I can reach out to the community around me. Just the people in my circle that God has placed here. I can't fix the whole world, but I can look around me and who's here. And I can approach those people with humility and not assume anything about them, right? Not jump down their throat, give them the benefit of the doubt and listen to what they're doing, what they're about and make a difference in that life. Absolutely. And if each of us does that where we are, then we can make an impact across the whole world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I did. I did a lesson for our church. Uh, we, We do our midweek Bible study on Tuesday nights and we call it the living room. And I just did a topic called pay attention to your place, Hmm. that your place is so important, you know, uh, to to be consistently productive and and manage our lives better. You know, we've got to strengthen our skill in attention management. Hmm. (laughs) It matters, you know, who's around you. The Mm -hmm. state of your attention determines the state of your life. So you, you, you you gotta always try to chase after and pursue being at the right place at the right time because you benefit from that. And so your space matters, who occupies your space matters as well. So it's not time wasted. It's it's feeding and encouraging and, and lifting up and, and praising um, and highlighting. And uh, that makes a difference and that determines your next. And I often say where you are, it determines the proximity of what God has for you. And where you are is so broad, so general. Where you are, meaning, what are you thinking? You know, uh, who's occupying your space? What's occupying your space? Relationships, uh, conversations, social media, influence, just everything, you name it. How you spend your money, that that all consists of where you are. <laughs> yeah. And where you are determines the proximity of what God has for you next. So your decisions and your choices weighs heavy in regards to your next. And at the end of the day, you cannot fault anybody else for the decisions and the choices that you fail to make. So much, so much wisdom, so much to think about. I really, Uh, no, I'm really going (laughs) to be mulling this over for a while. Is there anything that you wanted to say on on this, any of these topics we've covered? Is there anything that I've missed before we wrap up that you wanted to make sure we that we address here? Man, we covered so much. <laughs> Man, these these questions have been amazing. It's been challenging to me to kind of think again, you know, some areas that I just kind of like really didn't think much. But I think overall, Jessica, you know, the the signs of the times are asking us as a church to wake up, mm. not just to wake up, but to stand up and to speak up. You know, when we see injustice, when we see racism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever we choose to do, our efforts must be constantly led and accompanied by prayer. Mm. You know, our obligation, of course, first is to be a Christian, but also to be a good neighbor, as Jesus said in his parable. And how do I be a good neighbor? You know, these efforts being accompanied by prayer, 
we got to stop and help the injured. We've got to accept the responsibility of healing. You know, we know the famous tagline question, what would Jesus do? <laughs> we have to act like Jesus, mm-hmm. loving our neighbors as ourselves. Easy said, difficult to do. So all around us today are, are examples of situations that can frustrate us, that can, you know, to disappoint us, and, and if not, make us outright angry. Mm-hmm. So the church's agenda should be to promote love and to promote peace, whether that's, you know, pledging to be civil in our conversations, acts of community service, keeping our minds open to new ideas and perspectives, or lending our time and money to issues we are passionate about. That's the test. That is the ultimate test of the church. It's to learn to spread peace, even when the world around us is not very peaceful. That's tall order. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so it's an everyday challenge for us. And, and, and by God's help, God, he's going to have to grace us and he's going to have to help us with it. Because our emotions can get in the way every time we watch the news, every time, you know, something else happens. And, you know, just our emotions can easily get in the way. We've got to do the very best that we can to filter out those emotions because our emotions can drive us to actions that may not benefit or may not change things for the better. Yeah. We need Jesus at the center of it all. Yes, sir. We need to be spirit led and we need to be prayerful and we need to ask God to keep our mind when we feel like we want, we we feel like we're losing it (laughs) and to guide our heart and to help us as a church to be a beacon of light and a source to our community that Jesus again says it out of his own mouth that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, conflict, you you name it. We're seeing it today. But the church that he's established, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Neither any other system or acts of violence or anything else that we see around our world, the church is the answer. Says the church is, is, is the hope for a lost world. And if we're a part of that church, we've got a role to play. And we got to make sure that it's God's agenda, not our agenda. Mm, I love that. I love it. Who better than people of the name filled with the power of the spirit, right? Absolutely. Well, we wrap up every show with the same question. So I'm going to ask you our final question. Pastor Jolly, what is a good question that you're asking lately? (laughs) Oh, that's so hard. I think out of all (laughs) the questions you asked, this is probably the hardest. There's so many, there's so many questions, really. But I think, you know, I don't want to spiritualize it, you know, or just kind of church it. I'll just probably say it from a standpoint of is the greater problem, the greater opposition, the greater wall, whatever you want to call it, of what God wants to do next in your life comes from us standing on the edge of what he did last. And that's and that's a provoking question because it's easy to, you know, point the focus on the devil, you know, mm. and all the negative stuff. But let I just want to provoke your thought because it's provoked my thought and it's challenged me in many ways. Ministry, life itself. I've got to ask. Everyone has got to ask themselves the honest question and honestly answer it. It is the greater opposition. I ain't talking about the devil. I ain't talking about you know, hell, and that that sounds good, <laughs> but is the greater 
problem of what God wants to do next in your life comes from us standing on the edge of what he did last. Mm. And so uh, with that, let's let's step into something new, something fresh, because God wants to give us something daily. New creativity, new ideas, new anointing, new vision, new dreams. And what you're holding on to in terms of what God did last could be the wall that's preventing you from seeing what God wants to do next. Hmm. Well, that'll preach. <laughs> uh, it's it's rocked my world and it's still challenging me today yeah i can think of a whole bunch of ways that that what could apply right this minute that's fantastic well i appreciate it i could be the fun side too and just you know kind of say because <laughs> my wife go back and forth you know which which came first the chicken or the egg <laughs> don't ask me to answer that please <laughs> Because I have no idea. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable and open and talk about these things that we don't talk about too often. I know it's going to open somebody's mind and open somebody's heart. And I hope our listeners will reach out to us if they have questions, if they want to continue this discussion, because I think that it's important and we need to be willing to stay with it and do our part. So thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for what you're doing, Jessica, and this platform and being a voice. And hopefully our talk together has, it, it's it's blessed me. I, I'm blessed to just be a part of it and uh, and just to share. And I, and I hope the listeners uh, receive something from this and will be blessed as well. So it's my honor. Thank you so much for considering me. I, I had a great time. You know, on this show, we have three main goals. To get you thinking, to spark conversation, and to help you feel less alone. And I sincerely pray that this episode accomplishes all three of those goals. I hope your mind is more open than it was when we started, and you'll be thinking about how you can start to respond to issues of race in your immediate sphere. Not trying to fix the world, but looking around for what is in your realm of influence to do. I hope it sparks conversations. If you haven't been talking about race in your family, with your friends, or in your church, I hope you step out beyond discomfort to begin that discussion. If you haven't ever asked your black or brown friends about their experiences with racism and discrimination, I hope you'll respectfully reach out and offer them a chance to share, and then listen to them without giving into the urge to become defensive. And if you are a person of color who feels like your life is not valued by society or by the church, I hope hearing this conversation helped you feel less alone. Your life matters. It matters to Jesus and it matters to me. I'm so grateful to Pastor Jolly for his willingness to let me ask him these questions, for his thoughtfulness in responding, and for his honesty and vulnerability putting these words into a public forum to make us all a little more aware a little more empathetic, and hopefully a little more like Jesus. I want to keep talking about this topic with you. We'll be on Instagram stories this week with opportunities for you to reach out and share your thoughts. And I'll be sharing some of the resources that are helping me open my mind and expand my understanding. You can find us on Instagram at Good Question Show, and I'm at Jessica Tanderup. That's Jessica T, as in Tuesday, 
A-N-D-E-R-U-P. You can also search for the show page on Facebook. Or if you have more thoughts than will fit in a DM on social media, you can always email us. Our email address is goodquestionshow at gmail.com. This podcast is a production of Good Question Media and is produced and hosted by me, Jessica Tanderup. My co-producer, editor, and the person who is always there to hear me process my thoughts on hard topics is my husband, Dave Tanderup. Our audio engineer is Josh Powalczyk. That's it for this week. We'll be back here next Tuesday with another good question. See y'all then.